You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Dustin Warford titled Pride, Submission, and Conflict, which is part five of our James series. For more info, please visit creekside.org. My pleasure to be back with you again as we continue through our book of James. But I realized something as as Pastor Terry was talking. I need to hold my wife's hand less. Because I hold her hand all the time and I don't get that look anymore. (laughs) So I need to stop this, right? No, but... um, yeah, uh, Pastor Terry mentioned the, the prayer night coming up, and I've, I've, I think I've told this before. I know I've told it in smaller groups. Um, Joe Heskett, uh, that is the name of the woman that prayed for me all through middle school and high school when we did this back when I was here in middle school. We, um, we had a prayer night, and I think the first night was kind of just kind of drawing names and going to the student who you had, but I remember that throughout the year, she would send me cards just saying she was praying for me, and then on Sunday, she'd always greet me and say hi. But then every year when we would do that moving forward, she would keep praying for me. And she would choose me instead of drawing a name. She'd come right back to me and continue to pray for me. And then I think there was a year where we didn't do it, but she still prayed for me. So it it meant a lot to me to have an adult at Creekside praying for me throughout the year. So just uh, my own little, uh, my own two cents on how important I think that is for us to be a part of praying for our students. So come to that on, on that Wednesday. It's, it's a powerful, great time, and the impact you can have on a student or just a child is, is amazing. So if you have your Bibles or your Digibibles on your phone, turn to James chapter four as we keep going through here. Now, I was talking uh, with Pastor Terry particularly about this passage a couple months ago um, because I felt like as as I read this, I I got a massive gut punch with some of the the things that James was talking about. And then as I recovered, I was like, all right, so, so James really knocked me there and God's really telling me stuff. Let me unpack this and see what it means. And then it's like, okay, you're feeling good. You understand that? Boom. And then it got me again. And that's a lot of what we're kind of going to read through today. But my my prayer and hope for all of us is that as we go through this together, um, if if you feel something like, all right, I feel like this is really talking to me, that we don't leave here discouraged because of what James is saying, but we really take something to apply and how can we change? What can we do about this when when we go? So never never a conviction that drives you down to feel like you can't do something, but a conviction that that says, all right, now what can I do? How can I change this? How can I really apply this and take these words and integrate it into my heart and let it change? my life, all for the sake of growing closer in my walk with Christ and letting that be a blessing to others in their walk with Christ. Make sense? All right, so, so here we go today. James chapter four, we'll start there in a second, but before we read, there's a, a story I found that kind of, I like, kind of ties into James. There's a, a man who received a promotion in his company to vice president. And after he receives this promotion, he starts walking around telling everyone, bragging about what he's done, how he's new the vice president. This goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Everyone knows, everyone hears. When he comes in, it's, oh, here he comes again. Very proud of what he's done. Eventually, it drives people crazy, even his wife. Heel. Wife, embarrassed by his behavior, says, listen, it's not that big a deal. These days, everyone's a vice president. Why, they even have a vice president of peas at the supermarket. So, feeling somewhat deflated, the man calls his local supermarket to see if this is true. He says, can I speak to your vice president of peas? The voice on the phone says, sure, fresh or frozen. (laughs) So, 
we see that this guy in this story let pride totally take over his heart. He was very proud of what he's done, but to the point where it was devaluing and deflating everybody else around him. And it even drove his wife crazy. Now, James really talks a lot about pride in this passage, and we'll, we'll see that when we get into it. Now, if you know me, you'll know that confidence is not something that I lack in my life. I, I, I'm very confident what I do. I, I come across, when I play sports with people, I like to talk smack while we're playing. Um, I give credit where credit is due. Terry can still beat me at basketball. There'll come a day, though, when he can't shoot anymore, then I'll be able to win. It'll be good stuff. But... Um, even my personal email address has I am the king in the email address. My kids call me Superman. My daughter Avery calls me King Daddy Dustin Superman. So she just throws it all in there. And so when it, when it comes to just my, my life in general, I, you know, when it comes to, you know, I'm confident in what I can do. I don't have a, I definitely don't have an ego problem is what it boils down to. But James really talks about pride. And when I looked at my life and the, the confidence I have, I realized too that I do have to make sure that I don't let my confidence turn into pride and let my confidence turn into something deeper, which could be a hindrance. And we'll see what James is talking about here as we go in. And we're going to unpack this together today, and we'll see how he wrote about this, how important it is for us and the church as Christ followers to not let this be something that really roots in our heart and how we can change our hearts to have hearts, just like the song said, when we sing out to, to God and Jesus, just fill me with your heart. So here we go. We dive in, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 12 together and take a deep breath because there's a lot in here that we'll unpack together. So it says this, starting in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, I know, a good pickup line right there, right? Make you feel good. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy you, or save and destroy. But you, you, who are able, who are you to judge your neighbor? So that's a whole lot of James kind of ranting about a whole lot of what's going on in the church, right? And um, who doesn't love reading a good rant every now and then? But here's James just pouring it out for us. Don't do this. We've got to stop this. And there's a lot to unpack in there. But I think James, when we really unpack what he's saying, he really is boiling it down to two big terms that are the root of issues in this passage. He says people are dealing with pride and people are dealing with hedonism. Now, if you don't know what hedonism is, we'll get to that in just a second, but I want to start with pride. So pride is defined as this. 
a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. Now, that may not sound so bad, right? You know, being, being proud of what you've done. I know when, when Aurora does something, like, listens to me, then I'm proud of her. <laughs> she, she listened to her dad. Yes. Um, Avery, the three-year-old, I'm even more proud because she's three, and we call her our three-nager right now at home. But, you know, I mean, but pride is, is a thing that people use all the time. But James is taking it really, really deep here and talking about how a deep-rooted issue in pride is causing issues in the church and issues amongst the fellow Christ followers. Now, some of us maybe don't have a big pride issue. Some of us, maybe this is something you really do deal with, something that you have to keep in check. Like I've said, I, I have to keep myself in check because my confidence, if I'm not careful, can easily turn into a pride thing where I'm elevating myself by devaluing somebody else. And that's where the real issue comes in. Um, whenever we play a game, we, we have a pretty competitive household at home. Um, Stephanie and I play games. We don't let each other win. We don't let the kids win. You know, we, we, play, we play games to win. But... Something that my family knows is that I get pretty competitive and I, I do win a lot. And when I win, Stephanie will go, oh great, here we go. Here goes Dustin's ego. Boop. You know, just Let me go get a bigger hat for your head that's going to explode right now because you're so happy with what you've just done. And she says it in love because we live, breathe, and eat sarcasm at home. But she, we, we, we love each other, but I do know that I have to keep it in check because it can very easily turn into something that I don't want it to be, very, very easily. There's an element of truth there that I have to make sure I don't let my pride take over. But the problem is sometimes it's not just pride with people. I think ultimately it turns into a pride issue with God. Where James is saying here that we start doing things our way and that doesn't just affect our relationship with people, as you read through here and he starts talking about how we treat each other, when pride gets deep-rooted, it starts turning into how we affect and relate to other people as well. And 99.9% of the time, not in a good way. And then when you have someone who's more prideful than you and you have a big old pride fight, that's just an explosion waiting to happen. But James addresses this and he uses terms that the people understand because these are all terms that Jesus dealt with and Jesus used when he was talking to people. He says, all too often with you, you find your root in pride. You fight with each other. You have quarrels with each other. You battle one another. You kill one another. You covet one another. You're so jealous that you're angry that you don't have what these people have. He's using these terms because everyone, that his, his audience knows what they are, and he's recognizing they as a church are dealing with some heavy, deep-rooted pride issues. I know of two people... Um, that go to another church and good friends of mine and they're, they're both on the worship team at their church. And one, that they both love to sing, they both have great voices, but there's one of them who is striving to be better than the other person. And it, it's rooted them so deep that when they talk, they have nothing good to say about the other person. All they ever say is what they want to do to beat the other person. And they, they, just, they don't build the other person up at all. And so I actually got the chance to talk to him and, and say, it sounds like you're really dealing with a pride issue. They didn't like hearing it and I didn't like saying it, but we got to have a good talk about using your, your gifts for the, the church and, and getting rid of something that is eating away at your heart because it's ultimately blocking what God's going to do through you because you are being self-centered on what you want to do more than the other person. James talks about this in chapter three. He says, bitter envy and selfish ambition. So many fights we may think can be about outward issues, but when you boil down to the root of it, it can really be a, a prideful heart issue. And that's something James addresses here. 
Bitter, envy, selfish, or pride. It manifests deep. And a lot, oftentimes, we may not even realize that we're being prideful. It ends up becoming just kind of a part of the personality that we start talking about. And that's when it becomes a real hindrance because other people notice it. And it's going to take someone really, really strong and really close to be able to talk to you about it. And James flat out calls people out on it. Says we need to stop doing this. As long as we're here on earth, we're going to have strife and conflict. I mean, we're all people. We all know people. Well, I have a phrase that I like to say sometimes. People are going to people. <laughs> They're going to say something that hurts you. They're going to do something. You're going to encounter that one person who in your mind just doesn't get it or they're saying something that's just rubbing you the wrong way. <clears throat> people are going to clash. But in the midst of clashing, we need to be sure that we are letting the love of God flow into our heart and eliminate barriers or blocks that can be there. So that's what comes out of our mouths and out of our actions and out of the way we interact with each other and let pride take the back seat. Let pride get removed so our humility can speak, our love of Jesus can speak, and we can examine what are our real motivations for doing what we do. Taking this into mind, James is really asking a question to his people. He's, He's saying, all right, so with all these issues... Are you living your life to please God or are you living your life to please you? And he really unpacks this in a very blunt truth way. um, This is the word where our word hedonism comes from. So hedonism is living your way of life as a self-satisfying way to please yourself always. That is hedonism. And James, in the original text, actually uses the word hedoni, which is where we get our word hedonism. In verse one, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your hedoni that battle within you? Our word we use was desires, but he uses hedonism. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, or instead of pleasures, he says it again, hedoni. Are you living for yourself? Are you not getting what you want because you're asking for yourself? The the word translates into many words that we know, desires, lusts, passions, pleasures. But usually in this context, he's talking about the bad sense of evil, pleasure, and lusts and desires that you want that are opposite of what God wants for you. It's almost like someone that's living in this lifestyle. Um, It's it's something that, you know, I I question, I had a lot of questions for me when I was reading this. Like, all right, God, in what way am I doing this? But it's like asking the question, or living the life with this phrase, I will choose... I will choose what seems to offer me the greatest amount of happiness at any point in life. That's the act of living in hedonism. I will always choose to satisfy myself. What gives me the most pleasure? That's what I'll choose. Now, don't get me wrong. That sounds pretty innocent when you think about it. I'm going to do this because it makes me happy. I mean, if you have two choices in front of you, one makes you happy, one makes you sad, what are you going to choose? The, the happy one, right? Raise your hand if you would generally choose to be a happy person. Happiness, there we go. All the hands, a couple of you not. You should raise your hand later. But you know what I mean? You, we, we choose to be happy. As human nature, we, we like to smile. I love going to the movies. I love comedies. I love to laugh. I love to be happy. My, um, my little sister stayed with my wife and I for a couple days. And it was funny. We're, my wife and I, like I said, we speak sarcasm and we love to laugh in our home. We're just interacting the way we always do. I look over, my sister's sitting on the couch and she is cracking up. I was like, what's going on? She goes, I feel like I'm watching a sitcom with you guys. Just as we, we love to laugh and, and just have fun with each other. And if you didn't raise your hand, you like to choose sadness, you probably like to go see Disney movies because that's what really invokes the, the sadness, right? 
You want to go see, you know, someone's parents die, go watch a Disney movie. <laughs> Animals or anything, that's what they do. But we choose happiness. And so, I mean, you look at it in that aspect, you think, well, hedonism maybe doesn't sound so bad. You're choosing to be happy. But the thing with hedonism, what James is really talking about here, is he says, if you're choosing this lifestyle, what you're saying is these two things. You're saying that you're, living, you're not living a life to love others and seek their good when it conflicts with your own. You want to choose you instead. And he's saying also, we have not surrendered our lives to God's will for us. Because the more we go through scripture, the more we see that, that God doesn't do things for us, for, for us to keep contained for us. God says, I want you to live out. I want you to go out and share. I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He says, go. I want to do things so you can be a blessing to others, not so you can store it all up for yourself. And that's what James is talking about, the, the heart of pride and the heart of hedonism. Hedonism is people asking and getting selfish and jealous and what they want for themselves. And he says, this is what we have to stop. Now, I'm not saying God hates happiness. And I'm not saying if you like doing things that make you happy, that that's wrong. If you, if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you'll, you'll see that, that there, there's a couple things I post about all the time. One is my wife and girls. Two is Disneyland churros. Yeah, they're, they're on my Facebook feed everywhere. I mean, we've, I, Disneyland's a fun place that I love to get to go to. And, and I don't think if I choose to go to Disneyland, God's going to say, Dustin's choosing happiness. Shame on you. I'm not saying if you go do something that makes you happy that God is saying no. But I'm saying if that is your driving core, I'm going to live my life for me, to self-gratify me. Everything I choose is all about me. That's when I think we're really missing the point. And James is saying that's where our struggles are coming from. That's where our quarrels and fights are with each other because we're choosing to live a selfish life and we're not letting God be the driving force behind our heart. We're letting our desires be the driving force behind our heart. <clears throat> selfishness can blind us to a real blessing and gift that God wants to pour into our lives. And God wants us to really have that outward focus on others. When we don't have what we want, James says this in verse two, he says, because we don't ask God. Now, I, I've heard some people actually say, well, you don't have that because you're not asking God, just ask God for it. But James doesn't stop there. there. There's a second half of this verse that really gets left out a lot of the times. It says this in verse two and three. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, one of the reasons I think you know, that, that God says no is because the motive behind the ask is wrong. And James is saying, you know, you ask because you don't have, and when you do ask, you're not getting it because you're, you're really thinking about yourself. And the Greek word here is depano, and it means to spend and spend freely. It's like going to your parents or parents, your kids coming to you and saying, you know, mom, dad, I, I need some money because I, I, I'm in a rough spot. I really need some money. And you're like, you know, as a loving parent, you're like, okay, I want to do this. My daughter's seven. She's already asking for things like this. I can't imagine what it's going to be when she's a teenager. But, but it's like, you know, a, a kid coming and saying, you know, I need some money. And you as a parent saying, yes, here you go. And then you go see what they spend it on. It's like Fortnite or something. <laughs> so they're like, wait a, wait a second. All, all the youth got that one. They're like, like, wait a second. I thought you needed that. And then they come to you again, you know, and they say, all right, you know, I really, I really need money for this, and, and you want to help them, so you do. And then they go and spend it on parties or toys, just something else. How often are you going to keep feeding them into this, you know, like, oh, I need, I need, I need. Oh, here you go. I think it's kind of like the same way with God. Like he's, he knows when, when we come to him and say, you know, God, I need this. It's really, I can picture God going, well, you need that or you want that? You know, what's, what's the real driving force behind this question? Because 
I really think God is going to give the thing, I know he'll give us the things we need to live the life that he wants us to, to share the love, to share the joy, the things that he pours into us. Yeah, he'll give us those things we need to serve him. But when we come with the wrong motives, that's when, that, that's when James is saying, no, you're asking with the wrong intent. And we have to be okay when God says no. <clears throat> Pastor Terry once told me, I remember if he said it here in church, I know he said this to me and just, it's something that I've learned from him. He said, you can always learn someone's maturity when you say no. Yeah, that's right, amen. Yeah. You can always learn someone's maturity when you say no. And we have to come to a place where we know we have to be okay when God says no. Because ultimately we need to understand that he knows best, not us. He knows if that's gonna be a blessing to us, if that's going to push our life mission with him forward, or if that's gonna be something that's gonna be self-serving and cause us to, to maybe not do what he wants us to do. We have to be able to trust that he knows everything. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he will give what he wants to give that he knows we need to serve him. <clears throat> now, again, I don't want anyone to think that God is against making us happy. If, if that was the case, I don't think he would have created the feeling of happiness or the feeling of joy that, that we get at times. But I do think even more than he's concerned with our feelings, he's concerned with the heart behind our feelings. And we see this in James so many times. And we see the love of God poured out in James. And I love the fact that in this passage, James uses something, and I said, I love this, but at the same time, it was really, really hard to read, because he talks about the love of God and how deeply God loves you, but he says it in this way. He says, God, God's love is many times, it's, it's referred to in scripture specifically here as a marriage. The way God loves us, God being the groom and us being the bride. And he addresses this in such, like I said, a punch you in the gut way when he talks about this. And, and James says to his audience, you adulterous people, like I said, very uplifting, right? A good way to start a, start a line. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And, and James is saying that, he's saying that like being a part of the world, that's like flirting with spiritual adultery, and, and I love the image that, that James gets because he gets downright personal. He, he addresses the people and he actually is using scripture to back this up. In Isaiah 54, we can see that this is not just James saying the, the marriage analogy. This is all through the Old Testament. Even in Revelation, it brings in the marriage analogy of us and our relationship with God. Isaiah 54 says, for your maker is your husband and the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of the earth. Hosea 2 says, I betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And then Ephesians 5, one that many of us may be familiar with because um, it's very commonly spoken at weddings. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And lastly, Revelation, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I love that all throughout scripture we see our relationship with God so deep that it's related to as a marriage, a bride and a groom. And that's what I think makes this, this passage so, uh, so hard to see or hard to go through and read because when we're married and we flirt with somebody else or we get intimate with somebody else, we've just committed adultery. 
And we choose to live a life of self-satisfying over the life that we've committed to. And James says, when we choose the world, when we choose to live that self-satisfying life, and we say, you know what? I want to do this for me, and I'm going to be of the world. That's, he's saying, we've just committed adultery against God. That's a deep, hard thing to kind of understand. And I know when I read that, it, I, I literally felt sick to my stomach thinking about things that I had done. Like, oh man, I know that in my life, I would never want my wife to feel or feel like I've, I've said anything or I've done anything to, to cheat on her. You know, I, I would never do that to her. And I would never want her to feel that way. But then I think, man, when, when I choose the world, that's what I just said to God. It was convicting for me. Convicting in a way, I was like, man, if, if I feel this way about my wife, I've got to feel this way about God because his love for me is so deep. He looks at me as a husband and wife look at each other. A deep, all-encompassing, intimate, personal, unending love. James relates this to our desire to choose God over the world. God has no desire to share us with the world. He says, I want you, and I want all of you. And I love that passage. And I love how it says, uh, the verse right after, verse five says, or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, I love this because when when I hear that, envies intensely, I think, man, God wants me so bad. James is telling them, God wants you so bad that he's envious when you don't choose him. I love that. I I love knowing that that God is up there and if I don't choose him, he's, he's like, Dustin, I want you. It's not just a, oh, there he goes, he'll come back. No, he wants me. He really, really wants me. He sent his son to die for me. His blood cleansed me. He's like, Dustin, I love you and I want you so bad. I'm, I'm mad that you're, I want you back. I'm so mad I want you back. I, I, I love it. I love how much he loves me. And I want to make sure that my life, and James wants to make sure the, the readers of this passage understand that God loves you so much, he wants you to love him back that way. He wants you to choose him at all times and not cheat on him, but to be faithful to him because he is so faithful to us. But knowing we're not perfect, knowing how much he loves us, James then brings in grace. Now, I love it when James brings in grace because a lot of his passages, I don't feel like speak a lot about grace. It's a lot of like, do this, do this, stop doing that. Adulterers, cheaters, liars, this. And then he brings in grace. It's like, oh, thank goodness <laughs> that this is back in. Paul speaks a lot about grace and a lot about joy. And James speaks a lot about what we've been talking about. He gets to the point on do this, but then he brings in grace. He says, but he gives us more grace That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In just six short verses, we see pride, grace, humility, and how they are all part of something that we wrestle with as followers of God, that we all wrestle with, even people that aren't followers of God. These are things that we wrestle with. But God pours out an abundance of grace. And as we recognize our part to play. As we recognize the way that we can mess up, we recognize the decisions and choices we make, we are then able to humble ourselves and say, God, I need your grace. Pour out your envious love that is on me. And we get to see him and feel him love us with that envious love that is like no other. Often though, that requires us to go down a path that doesn't feel all too good, right? I mean, no one really likes confessing their sin. doesn't feel good most of the time. You're like, all right, let's think of everything I've done wrong. And if you start making a list, sometimes you'll just go, oh man, I've just, 
Woo, I'm glad he loves me because that was a bad one <laughs> right there. And, but, but the great thing is God does love you. And when we allow ourselves and we humble ourselves before him and allow him to take like that surgical scalpel and just start peeling away those layers, peeling away layer after layer of selfishness. And we let him mold us. We let him shape us. We let him fill us with who he is. That's an incredible thing that we then get to share with other people. I don't think he molds us just for us. He molds us so we can be a witness and testimony to others. And I love how God works through us and to work with others. I know, like I said, I've struggled with pride in my life. And so when I, when I found this passage, God opposes the proud, I, I find myself distinctly desiring not to set myself up as an opponent to God, right? God opposes the proud. All right, so imagine myself getting into a boxing ring. And in one corner, you have this announcer. And if you guys haven't heard David Kirker do his announcer voice in CYC, oh my gosh, it's the most amazing thing. He announced me on Wednesday to the youth, and I felt more pumped than I ever have in a while. But imagine getting into a boxing ring and the announcer going, in this corner, we have Jehovah, we have God, we have Yahweh, the creator of all things. It is God. And the crowd's going wild. And in this corner, we've got Dustin. <sighs> Not an opponent you want to face. I have a better shot of taking out Mike Tyson in round one than I do going up against God. And those odds aren't too high either. But God opposes the proud. I don't want to find myself on the opposite side of the ring with God, with him getting ready to deliver a haymaker. (laughs) He wouldn't even need to be a haymaker. He'd be like, and you lose. But I know that I don't want to be opposed to him. I don't want my stubbornness. I don't want my pride to become a barrier or an opposition to what I know God can do in me and through me. I know that when I come to God, I need to set myself up to understand that he wants to fill me with his grace. And that takes me to have humility, to push the pride away and have humility. I need it. But in order to receive it, I have to humble myself and focus on him first and not me. And ultimately, loved ones, I said this last week, there's a theme that goes through all the chapters of James. And I got real excited when I saw this, but, and I was telling Pastor Terry about this yesterday or the day before, I was like, it's, it's great seeing how James has all these issues, but there's one underlying theme that keeps coming through the whole thing. James keeps bringing it back to the heart. What is your heart going after? What is your heart's desire? What are you filling with your heart? The heart of the matter is just that. It is about your heart. We talked about in chapter one, religion versus relationship, and how God, more than anything, doesn't want you just to check a box of things to do for religious rules. He wants a relationship. He wants your heart. We talked about faith and works and how having head knowledge is one thing, but letting God transfer it and resonate it into your heart, that comes out through your actions, and we have the privilege of serving God with our heart, not just our hands and not just our heads, but our heart, and letting Jesus be alive and working in our heart. And last week, we talked about the tongue and how out of the heart, the tongue speaks, And James talks about using your words to build each other up, and it all comes down to the heart. This week, it's the same thing. Pride and humility, living for others, hedonism, living for yourself. What is resonating in your heart? That is what Jesus is after. That's what he wants more than anything. And I think this, the last chunk of verses I pulled out, I I can find six things that I found on ways that Jesus wants to work in our hearts and ways that we can work in our hearts and let God do heart surgery on us as we pursue a close relationship with him. The first one in in verse seven, I think we can find a heart of submission. 
Submitting yourself to God. Now, a great principle, to submit yourself means to come into voluntary obedience into a person. To bend your will to that person's will. Submitting voluntarily is not something a lot of people want to do, right? You don't want to openly go to someone and say, all right, I'm not in charge, you are. Um, Well, you know, you can do it voluntarily or you can do it like the way my brother does it. My, My brother Anthony is a mixed martial arts cage fighter. And so he literally beats people into submission. That's what he does. I don't want God to beat me into submission. But I get the feeling he will if I don't listen. But I know that I need to willingly submit myself to God. To willingly come to him and say, God, it's not about me. This is really all about you and what you want for me. A heart of submission to his will over my will. Second is a heart of resistance. Now, the word resist in Greek is anthestomy. It means set against oneself, set against to oppose or to withstand. Now, you may think when I say heart of resistance, kind of like, well, wait a second, we're all talking about submission, and now you're talking about resisting, but, but James talks about resisting something in particular, and I think we need to have a heart that resists this. James says, turn away from sin, resist the devil. Now, <clears throat> If you have kids, or you've heard kids say it, or maybe you said this when you were a kid, and you say, hey, why'd you do that? And they go, huh, the devil made me do it. (laughs) Aurora's never said that line, but I'm waiting for the day (laughs) where she does. But you know, I mean, it's a a line that we've heard kids say before. Maybe you've said it before. Oh, the devil made me do it. Well, I think we need to have a heart of resistance that resists the temptation that the enemy may throw at us at some times. And the enemy does have a very clear part to play when it comes to temptation. We see in scripture in the book of Matthew, Jesus is in the desert fasting for 40 days and the devil comes to him directly and starts to tempt him. And Jesus shows his heart of resistance because he has his heart of submission to the word. So the devil tells Jesus, he says, hey, in fasting for 40 days, man, man's got to be hungry, really hungry. And so that's the first thing the devil throws at him. He says, hey, turn this rock into bread. I know you're hungry. Say it, command it. You can do it. And Jesus replies, you know, it was written, man shall not live on bread alone. So he resists the devil's temptation there. And then the devil comes at him and says, all right, well, how about you just climb up here and throw yourself off this building? Your angels will catch you. Everyone will then know who you are and you don't got anything to worry about. And Jesus says, no, it says don't test God. And the devil says, okay, how about you just bow down to me and I'll give you everything. You can reign over everything. And Jesus resists him again and says, no, it is written, bow down only to God, serve no other gods. And so the devil gets totally turned away and frustrated and leaves because Jesus used his heart of resistance. He used his heart of the word and submission to God to turn him away. Now, I bring that story up because all those things that Jesus was tempted with actually were things that Jesus was going to get anyways. Was Jesus going to eat again? Yes, he was going to eat again. He did not starve to death in the desert. He did go eat again, but the devil offered him a quick solution. It was not God's solution. It was the wrong solution. He took a desire that Jesus had and said, oh, let me offer you this. And I think also often he can do the same thing to us. Let me take a desire that you have and there's God's way to do it. But then, oh, but this way is so much easier. Just go do it. We need to be able to say, I resist that. I will not go down that road. Take, take the desire that humans have for sex, for example. Humans have that desire, but that is a good desire God gave you in the context of marriage. But also often it can be thrown into pornography, or sex outside of marriage, a good desire fulfilled the wrong way. There's God's way, and then there's the world's way. 
the desire to provide for someone's family, for your family. There's the, there's the way where you can get a job and, and work and work hard and provide and be there for your family. Or there's the way where you can try and cheat and steal and manipulate and take the shortcut. Good desire may be the wrong way to go about it. And so James is saying here, resist temptation, turn away from the devil. And I love the line that says, and he will flee from you. We see it happen with Jesus. When Jesus resists the devil, the devil flees. And we are able to push him away with just the power of get away in the name of Jesus. I'm going to serve him, not you. He can't make you do anything. We have to have that heart that says, you know what, God? I'm going to do your way. I will resist temptation. I will not give into this because your way is better. It is the best. Third is having a heart of repentance. James says in verse eight, go wash your hands. And he says, purify your hearts. Now, now, what does this mean? Because we've talked how Jesus is, the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can cleanse you. We, we've said that scripture says that it is by grace you've been saved. Jesus spilled his blood to pay for your sins. That is the only thing that can save you. But then James says, go wash your hands. This is not saying you are going to forgive yourself from your sins. You can't do that. But he is saying <clears throat> that you have a part to play in turning away from your sinful desires and saying, you know what? I know that's wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. I wash my hands of that. We see this in scripture in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Isaiah says this, your hands are full of blood, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Washing your hands is another way of saying, stop doing wrong, I'm done with this. We get a very literal picture of it with Pontius Pilate during the trial of Jesus. Pilate gets a a basin of water and he washes his hands. He says, I'm done. I wash my hands of this. We need to have the same attitude when it comes to turning away from sin. We say, you know what? I wash my hands of this. I'm done. Now, I know as much as I've said that and tried to say that, I have still messed up. But that doesn't mean God's grace stops. It means God's grace flows. And I'm able to come back to him and say, God, I know I messed up. I know I blew it, but I'm going to wash my hands of this and I'm going to do my best again. I will follow you with my heart and try again. And I know God's right there saying, let's go. Let's do this again. Remember, his love is like no other and he wants us to come to him. Revelation 7.14 says this. These These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. No, they didn't save themselves, but they washed their robes. They turned away from sin and they were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The one and only thing that can cleanse us from us and purify our hearts is from Jesus. Fourth is having a heart of humility. James sums it up. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, which literally means to go lower and to make low. James has been talking this whole chapter about the roots of pride and having independent, selfish life. And he says, when we come to Christ, we got to understand we have to make ourselves lower. We have to humble ourselves and realize that we are not, but that he is. And what I love about this is that after it says, humble yourself and he will lift you up. That's a great picture to see when we literally go to God and say, God, I'm going to make myself lower. I am, it is not about me. It is all about you. That ultimately our act of making ourselves lower, that's when God raises us up. We get to see that, that it's not our strength that raises us up. It's his strength that raises us up above everything else. And it's our strength that ultimately leads to the world and leads to defeat. But God's strength, oh man. God's strength lifts you up when we humble ourselves to him. He lifts us up in humility, 
not pride. Fifth is having a heart of unity. Now, the next chunk of verses, James again comes down, he says some really, really straight to the point things about the way people talk to each other. He says, brothers do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, I think this, this is key for where we are in life. Now, I know that we are coming up on political season. The debates have started happening, and I'll just be totally honest with you, I hate political season. I really do hate it. When, when you turn on the news, you see people slashing each other down. You turn on Facebook, and you see people just going at it, hurtful words left and right. And, and of course, I, when I read these things, if I go online, I see on the news two people going at it. If it's two non-believers, that's one thing. And, and I do think it, it hurts, no matter who they are, to see people contesting with each other and slandering and bickering. But what really gets me and just it breaks my heart is when I go online and I see a, a, a fellow Christ follower saying something and I see another fellow Christ follower attacking that person and then they're just going at it. And that's what James is talking about, the slander and beating each other down. And ultimately, when you have two Christ followers going at it, who, who wins? It's not, it's not the love of Jesus that's winning that. It's really your own self-serving that you're trying to win by slashing and hurting. And I think we need to have a heart of unity. We need to understand that we are all on the same team. We are all here to spread the word of God, to spread the love of Jesus to those we encounter. I love, there was a former pastor here that used to say this phrase, and I love this phrase. He said, we are here to depopulate Satan's zip code. I love that line. I do love it because that is our job as believers to build each other up, to build up other people, to show them the love of Jesus so that they can experience the grace and forgiveness that Jesus brings, the ultimate love that he has. But I think we have to have a heart of unity to be able to do it together. To not look at, at the church down the street as our ultimate competition, but our ultimate ally. To be able to look at the people in the room with you, other Christ followers, and say, we are on the same team. Let's do this. Let's go. Let's spread the love of Jesus. Let's be in our community. Let's love God. Let's love people. Let's reach people unified as one, not slandering each other, but building each other up. I think it's all too easy to take shots to to really tear each other down, but amazing things can happen when we are all unified under the love of Jesus with the same mission to spread the love of God. And lastly, I think we need to have a heart of love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul reminds us of this. He says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. When we have a heart of love, that's when Jesus wins. When we get to go to people and say, I'm going to let the love of Jesus pour out of my heart, that affects the way we talk. It affects our actions. It affects the way we move. It affects the things we do. And that's when people can really experience the love of God. I love it when people are doing things for each other 
And then the question comes, why are you doing this? This is so amazing. And then you tell them it's because you love Jesus. But it's not the, I love Jesus and then I'm gonna do this, but just you let your action speak. You let what pours out of your heart really be the love of Christ. And that's what attracts people and brings them to him. And it turns us away from pride. It turns us away from the the hedonism or the the self-centered living because it really is when you're living out with love, you're looking out for people. You wanna see them thrive. You wanna see them succeed. You wanna see Jesus exalted in their life. And that's what, pours out of our hearts. We've got to let God fill our hearts with his love and let that pour out of our actions. James says it in uh, chapter two, verse eight, the royal rule, the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. When we let the love of Jesus flow from our hearts, I truly believe that we will see humility fill souls. We'll see, we'll see ourselves, we'll see others turn away from a self-centered life and we can see above all, Jesus exalted above everything. My prayer for all of us as we get ready to leave here today, my prayer is that, that we, didn't, we don't, again, read this and think, oh man, James just called me an adulterer, he just called me a slanderer, oh man, I kill and I covet. Jesus stinks. I really want us to understand that James calls these out because he has a love to see the kingdom of God grow. And he has a love to see us grow in our love for God. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Letting God get a hold of our hearts so that we can take that out into our community. We can take it out into our city and let God's love overflow in everything we do. Amen. Would you all stand with me? It's, it's been a lot of fun to, to do James, and uh, I would encourage you next week, or this week, to read the last chapter in James as we dive into that together. But, but again, as, as we leave here today, be encouraged that God loves you more than anything, more than anything, and he wants to get a hold of your heart so badly that he wants, <laughs> he wants it to pour out of you and into your brother, into your sister, into your spouse, your kids, your family, your friends, your schools. Your kids are going to school. How great is it when we have the love of Jesus pouring out of our kids and letting that infuse, our, infuse into our schools? But that's gonna come with us teaching our kids how to show love and showing love to our kids. My prayer is that for all of us, guys, that God molds and shapes our hearts, that we're not discouraged by things that we may have done, but th- that we are encouraged because we know what he can do through us because of where we've come from. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for for these people. And I I pray that as we leave here today, God, we leave changed knowing that it is you who is in our hearts, you that has a hold on our heart, God. And I ask that you mold and you shape each and every one of our hearts to, to turn away from any pride issues that we may have. God, if we're struggling with something that we know we need to give up, that we give it up, we, we resist temptation, we, we have humility in our hearts, and we turn to you above all else, God. We give you control, and we're able to say, God, use me. Where can I go? What can I do? Because I love you and because you love me. With that, God, I thank you for all these people. Pray a blessing on them as they leave today and they start school this next week. We thank you, we love you, and all of God's children said... Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. You are loved. Have a great afternoon. I'll see you next week.